What actually happens when the Federal Reserve starts cutting rates? Now, we know what's supposed to happen. Things start to go bad. The Fed unleashes some of its easy and accommodative policy, which helps the economy, cushions the blow so that we all achieve this nice, soft landing. But is that what really happens? Let's take a look at the history of rate cuts so that we can make some determinations for ourselves. Because we know what the Fed wants us to believe. They want us to believe that rate cuts are the end-all, be-all of accommodation, and they've got the tools to protect the economy just in case the soft landing doesn't materialize. In fact, Jay Powell just last year said as much. He said, if we over-tighten, because they always, they always associate bad outcomes with their policies, if we over-tighten, he said, and we don't want to, we want to get this exactly right, but if we over-tighten, then we have the ability with our tools, which are powerful, love how he threw that in there, as we showed at the beginning of the pandemic episode, we can support economic activity strongly if that happens, if that's necessary. So the Fed has the tools and they're not afraid to use them. And with the Fed talking about a pivot, really taking out insurance, that's what they want us to believe. If you start thinking the economy's heading toward recession, don't worry about a thing. Mr. Powell has us covered with his rate cuts. So even if the Fed starts talking about pivoting, in the talking about pivoting, that is supposed to also be accommodative when you realize all this interest rate targeting stuff is really just psychology. So in addition to going through the, the history of Fed rate cuts, let's talk about where this interest rate stuff actually came from too. But before we get there, I just want to re remind everyone, we're still doing a holiday Christmas sale at Eurodollar University. You get memberships, the daily briefing, the deep dive analysis, a bundle for all three at one incredibly low price. Check it out at our website, eurodollar.university. So while we call interest rate targeting monetary policy, it actually is not monetary policy. And the reason we have interest rate targeting or central banks try to use interest rate targeting is because they don't actually do monetary policy. Real central banks would affect the money supply more directly or as close to as indirectly as possible. Before the 1970s and the great inflation, monetary system getting out of control, evolution everywhere in the banking and forms of money, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, used to try to match its reserve policy with a target or specific goal in mind for M1. They tried to match, again, what reserve balances were, interest rates, a whole bunch of stuff, and say, okay, we want M1 to do this, so the economy, we think, does that. It was a one step removed from actual monetary policy. They weren't targeting an interest rate and they weren't necessarily targeting a level reserve. They were just trying to match and correspond this stuff that they control with outcomes in the monetary system, the real economy that was becoming more and more difficult to get a handle on because money was evolving. With monetary evolution, especially the 60s and the 1970s, the Eurodollar system really got going. Eurodollar banks experimenting with different forms of money that were not in M1 nor M2 nor M1B and M1A or any of the other aggregates that they ended up coming up with. The Fed, all the central banks lost touch with the monetary system. As Boston Fed President Frank Morris said in July 1981, what he really admitted well, Mr. Chairman, in this case, Chairman being Paul Volcker, all this conversation or much of it suggests to me 
that we ought to face up to the fact that we do not know how to measure transaction balances in our present society. We have overnight repos, for example, that are used by a good many corporations as transaction balances, and repos are not in M1B at all, or M1A, or any of the Ms. I really don't think we will ever, from now on, be able to have a concept of transaction balance in which we can have the same confidence we used to have in the old M1. So what do you do if you're a central bank and you can't even measure money supply? You have no idea what the money supply is out there or back then money demand. You don't know what money demand for M1 is because there's demand for other forms of money you don't keep track of. So what do you do? What the Federal Reserve did was they sort of backed their way into interest rate targeting. One of the first responses to the great inflation under Paul Volcker was to target bank reserves, the level of bank reserves, which are not money, by the way. The idea was if we target bank reserves and make them scarce, somehow that will restrict credit and that restriction of credit will lead to a decline in the economy, therefore the end of inflation. And the theory was sound, except for the fact that bank reserves didn't actually matter. While the Fed actually did restrict bank reserves, driving up the federal funds rate in 1979 and in 1980 and again in 1981, they realized that didn't have the effect that they were expecting. Instead, they sort of afterwards said, well, where did these recessions come from? Maybe it was because interest rates were driven so high. Maybe that was the reason that we got recessions in 1980 and 81, 82. It wasn't the targeting of reserves. Maybe it was this result in interest rates. And so because the Federal Reserve lost count of money supply and money demand, they said, well, maybe all we have to do is target the federal funds rate. We'll move, into, we'll move the level of bank reserves around as we see fit in order to achieve a specific target. And then somehow that target, that interest rate target, that federal funds rate target will impact the real economy and we'll be able to control it in lieu of actual money in the money supply. The proliferation of financial products made it too difficult to figure out money demand or supply any money. So they just stuck with this interest rate targeting stuff as a workaround and just assumed that it had been interest rate targeting, which led us to the great moderation, the so-called great moderation. That's what Ben Bernanke said in the 2000s. Many economists were highly skeptical of that claim for good reason, as it would turn out. So when losing touch with the monetary system, the Fed turned to this interest rate targeting scheme in the 1980s. The next couple decades, things seemed to work out really well. But is that really because of interest rate targeting and specifically the case of rate cuts? That's what we're here to examine. Did rate cuts actually produce the great moderation? Have rate cuts ever actually worked in any instance? So let's go through the historical cases to see whether or not rate cuts are as powerful accommodation as is often claimed. And we'll begin with the last time the Fed was cutting rates, which was in 2019. Remember the 2018-2019 period, it sounded very similar to what we're facing today, except there was no CPI outbreak. Instead, there was a promised CPI outbreak that never actually happened. Remember, tight labor market, labor shortage, everybody was talking about that. The Fed was going to aggressively hike rates 2018, continue to hike rates in 2019 because the economy was so robust. But the markets were already in the middle of 2018 saying, Hold on a minute here. We don't see this inflation. We don't even see the economy you guys are looking at. We had inversion in Eurodollar futures, June of 2018. Market rates that were doing, they were fighting back, flattening curves, yield curves, all that stuff, uh, late 2018. And then 2019, the Fed said, oh, we see the weakness 
we agree with the marketplace that maybe something isn't going the way we thought it was. So in specifically the interest rate case, what you see is market rates peak in early November 2018, just after the September effect wore off in October into November 2018. So the two-year tenure, those start to go down while the Fed is still hiking rates. The Fed did its final rate hike in the mid to middle of December 2018, even as market rates are already falling pretty quickly. The Fed doesn't get to its first rate cut until July 2019, and then there were two more rate cuts to follow, along with, if you remember, not QE5, which was a response to the repo problems that showed up in September 2019. They didn't want to call it QE because they didn't want to admit the situation was that serious, but it was still a QE anyway. And also the, the two-year tenure spread had inverted in August of 2019 as rates were going lower, as the Fed was already cutting rates, suggesting that the situation was more serious than many people were willing to consider it. Furthermore, the two-year two year stayed below the federal fund's upper limit late into 2019, which indicated that maybe the market wasn't, wasn't satisfied the three rate cuts were the end of the rate cut story, nor the recession danger. So the reason why many Fed officials and many in the mainstream media point to 2019 as a successful case is because we don't know how it would have turned out. The pandemic period basically overwhelmed all the results, and again, these recession processes don't happen overnight. So we don't know, absent a pandemic, how 2020 would have turned out. The markets were more pessimistic than the Fed economists, the Fed staff, the rate cuts made it seem, but we don't know for sure. So the, the 2019 rate cut case is inconclusive. The one that before 2019 that most people want to point to, especially those at the Federal Reserve, is 1995. In 1995, that followed a series of rate hikes as the Federal Reserve, which had lowered rates in 1990 and 1991, as we'll get to in a moment. They kept them low because the recovery after the 1990-91 recession, the SNL recession, wasn't all that great. But by 1994, the Fed started to see that the economy was pretty robust. It started booming again. And so it started raising interest rates in 94, heading into 1995. A 10-year U.S. Treasury rate topped out in November 1994. The two-year followed in December of 94. And it's we need to note here there was no two-year, 10-year inversion at any time during this period. So the market wasn't convinced this was a recession possibility. The Fed did its final rate hike in February of 1995, and then the rate cut would follow in July, just several months later. There'd be two more later on in 95, starting in December of 95, and both the market and Greenspan finished up this lower interest rate, uh, lower interest rate trajectory in February of 1996. And the reason why many people point back to this period because they think it was a successful implementation of rate cuts to cushion an economy that may have headed toward recession in the middle 1990s. But again, there was no market indication nor really any data indication that suggested the economy was that weak or in that much danger that it needed some rate cuts from the Fed to cushion the blow. Remember the middle 1990s, boom telecom revolution, globalization. The global economy was legitimately booming everywhere. So this one, while we can't prove a counterfactual, it doesn't seem like there was much risk of recession anyway. The market certainly thought that way, but Greenspan is, give, is given lots of credit for shepherding the economy to its late 1990s flourishing.
There are three other cases of rate cut programs, and each one of those ends with a recession. In the rate interest rate targeting era since 1982, the first one of those was the 1990 recession. However, our story begins earlier in 1989. I've mentioned I've gone over this a couple times already, but it's worth going over again. The market rates peaked in March of 1989. The Federal Reserve did its final rate hike in May of 1989. So again, markets are ahead. The market, the 210 spread inverted in June 89, which just happened to be around the first rate cut in that series. The Fed would follow that up with two more rate cuts by August of 1989. And then later on in the year, they would do three more between October and December. And then both the market and Greenspan finished up around the same time. But early 1990, you see rates are rising, but the curve inverts again in March of 1990. And then interest rates, both the 10-year and two-year, they turn around in May of 1990, followed by another rate cut from the Fed in July. So the Fed in its series of rate cuts in 1989, did those actually stave off a recession that might've happened in early 1990? Was it Saddam to blame for spoiling Greenspan's soft landing? That's an arguable point that many economists say um, that, hey, 1990 would have avoided a recession if it hadn't been for the invasion of Kuwait. But the the yield curve suggested that the lingering dangers from 1989 hadn't completely dissipated after the Fed's action or because rates were going lower. Remember, the SNL crisis was going on in the background here. And it might have been that Saddam's invasion and the oil price spike was just the last straw the economy could no longer take. And the market was pricing that some spark would light the fuse and lead us into recession. So this one is somewhat inconclusive. Some economists make some arguments that the Greenspan had achieved the soft landing with the rate cuts in 89, and that it was spoiled by the Iraqi invasion in 1990. But I think the market suggests that there was going to be a recession either way, and the rate cuts didn't actually, didn't actually lead us into a soft landing. But that one is somewhat arguable. The other two are not. Clear-cut cases where aggressive rate-cutting regimes have basically no impact on the economy. The first one of those, 1990-2000-2001, the dot-com case. The, the Federal Reserve, again, you'll hear the story over and over again, fearing inflation, strong labor market, Phillips curve, and he initiated a series of rate hikes. Market interest rates peaked in January of 2000 with the 10-year with, in May of 2000 with the two-year, and notice how the two-year, 10-year spread inverts in between those in February 2000. The Fed gets to its final rate hike in May of 2000, which was a 50 basis point rate hike, by the way. But then just a mere seven months later, January 2001, after spending the entire summer telling us the economy's just fine, don't worry about a thing, the autumn as well, January 2001, almost right away as soon as the new year turns, the Fed starts cutting rates rather aggressively, and it continues to cut rates all throughout 2001 because there was a dot-com recession. Did the rate cuts keep the recession from happening? It certainly did not. The most you could argue is that the rate cuts left kept the recession to a modest, mild one, which is back into this category of jobs saved. But here's a clear-cut case where market rates moved lower before the Federal Reserve, before the Federal Reserve was even close to ready and admitting that they needed to go lower. And then the rate cuts happened in response to a recession that the markets were pricing in advance. 
That was certainly the case, once again, 2006, 2007, and 2008. Again, Alan Greenspan and then Ben Bernanke's Fed, raising interest rates, fearing inflation, tight labor markets, all that stuff. Market rates peaked in June of 2006, and the 210 spread had inverted several months before then. The final rate hike from the Fed came also in June 2006, but we're really interested in the downturn. Market interest rates really made a decisive move lower in June and July of 2007, and then the Fed followed a few months later because of everything that happened August 9th, 2007, and thereafter in September of 2007. And what you see again is the market is out in front of the weakness in both the banking system, monetary system, as well as the real economy that the Fed then recognizes and tries to do something with its rate cuts. But once again, the rate cuts don't do anything. And in this case, it's very clear they didn't do anything because we not only had a monetary crisis throughout the world, we also had the worst recession since the Great Depression. And it spread everywhere all over the planet. So rate cuts following along with the market and they don't actually cushion the blow in recession. So in all of our cases here, 2019, rates peaked in November 2018. The Fed followed in July 2019, a bunch of months later. 1995, market rates peaked in November 94, November, December 94. The Fed followed with rate cuts in July 1995. 1989 case, splitting those two up. March of 1989, peak in interest rates. The Fed did rate cuts starting in June of 89. 1990, following that following year, Market rates peaked in May. The Fed starts cutting rates in July and then more aggressive cutting later in the year. 2000, market rates peak in January and May of 2000. The Fed starts cutting rates in January 2001. In 2008, market rates peak and start going lower. June into July 2007, the Fed follows in September. So what you're seeing here is that markets do indeed lead rate cuts. And they lead rate cuts because outside of 94, 95, markets are picking up on substantial enough weakness to start hedging against it. So what we're really looking for here is an aggressive and convincing move lower in interest rates, maybe like we're seeing right now, which leads into the Fed responding to the same conditions that markets are forecasting and warning about. Market rates make a decisive move lower. That's an oh shit in the marketplace. But several months later, as history shows, the Fed has its own oh shit moment and starts cutting interest rates. That's what we see throughout history. Do interest rate cuts actually work outside of being nothing more than a signal that things are going wrong? Well, 1994-95, there was no recession. Was that because of rate cuts? Not, not likely. 2019, we'll never know for sure. And then in the other three cases, there was a recession. So rate cuts are overhyped as anything other than an admission, a reaction to what markets are already telling us. So as rates go down today and do appear to be making a decisive move, at the same time, the Federal Reserve is saying, hey, you know what? We might end up pivoting here too. History shows this is not accommodation. It has nothing to do with money at all. It's a response to what's already turning out. The Fed isn't the only major central bank to talk pivoting. The Bank of Japan this month, too, did its own kind of pivot. 
I discussed that at the video link below. As always, I thank you very much for joining me. Check out the URL University's Christmas sale. Huge thank you, URL University members and subscribers, especially all our new ones so far. And until next time, take care.